Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Impossible Podcast. Today's guest is Adam Dunlap. He's an actor and he's a tracer. And if you don't know what a tracer means, that's someone who does parkour. You've probably seen parkour all over the place on YouTube, and it's pretty badass. And Adam was one of the first people to ever get into parkour and actually trained with uh, David Bell, who's the founder of the movement. I get to talk to him about everything from how he found out about parkour early on in 2005, 2006, to how he's grown his practice and actually grown a business out of the entire movement. It's a great interview. Love talking to him about finding opportunities and being in the right place and putting yourself in the right place in the right time. But before we get into that, I got a few housekeeping announcements. First of all, if you're an athlete or you're doing parkour and you're running all over the place, it's really easy to get hurt and uh, you need to be taking care of yourself and your body. So you need to check out movewellapp.com, movewellapp.com. It's 10-minute mobility routines designed to help you get stronger, get faster, move well, and get injured less. I built it for myself after a pretty big injury and it was the one thing that helped me nurse myself back to health and get stronger and stay strong once I actually got healthy. It's 10-minute mobility routines. It's just 10 minutes. It takes the pain out of doing mobility work, and it's super simple to get started. You can check it out at movableapp.com and download it for your phone. Also, I haven't mentioned it in a couple of weeks, but startablog.com is still going strong. We are helping 10,000 people start a blog. Starting a blog was the single most impactful thing I've done in my career to help me start becoming a better writer, formulating stories, learning how to uh, write, and uh, actually just get online and realize what this whole internet thing is about. I know it can be intimidating, so we are helping... 10,000 people set up a blog on startablog.com. It's a completely free setup and you get $300 worth of bonuses just for signing up. So check out startablog.com and sign up for your free blog. And we'll usually get those situated for you in uh, 48 to 72 hours. So check it out, startablog.com and start a blog today and start living a better story with your life. Also, what would I be doing if I didn't mention Impossible Gear? If you're lining something on your Impossible list to go out and do, check out impossiblegear.com and get some great gear to wear for your next Impossible Challenge. The Impossible shirt is the best seller. But as I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we have a sweat-activated Impossible shirt, which is just available for pre-order for a few more days. It's a normal shirt. It looks like a normal shirt. But when you sweat, when you put in the work, when you push your limits... You sweat, and the sweat activates the Impossible logo. The Impossible logo shows up, and that's how you know you can go home because you've done the work, you've put in the work, and uh, you've pushed your limits. So check it out. Sweat activated, uh, Impossible gear, our normal Impossible gear as well, and we've got a lot of other stuff coming up as well. All right, guys, that's it for announcements. Let's get into my interview with Adam Dunlap. guys i'm here with adam dunlap actor tracer he's the director of parkour.com he's the president and brand manager of take flight a parkour apparel and shoes company i first got to know adam we were figuring this out what like five years ago we first met i think maybe five years ago Uh, because i was like i want to do parkour and uh adam was the guy in portland to talk to about parkour and uh we're back here been doing a lot since then and uh pumped to have you on the show man Thanks. I'm so excited to be here, dude. This looks like the coolest conversation experience I've ever had. <laughs> We're in a cigar room. Like this place is so cool. I'm so happy to be here. You picked this place out, and now I'm uh, I'm mad at Sean Ogle for not showing me about this earlier. So now I get to hold over that over his head. It's for, a hidden uh, gem, a, a Portland gem. First of all, let's talk a little bit about you. Can you do a? You know, I just did a real quick intro on you, but sure, share a little bit about you, your story, and uh, we'll go from there. Goodness. Well, I guess the story starts. In college, I started doing parkour. I graduated college and always had this idea to be an actor or a model or be in film or television productions in some way, mostly film really. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I had this talent now where I was doing parkour and nobody else was doing it. And I felt like maybe that was my end to that world. So long story short, I got represented by a modeling agency and kind of started what I called 
pursuing parkour. But the whole idea was to pursue parkour to get into like television and movies. Like that was the idea. So anyway, that led me down a path where I started a parkour gym. And then later that year, I started a parkour clothing company, which morphed into a shoe company. In 2011, I sold the gym and moved to France to work with the founder of parkour, David Bell. Spent two years working with him, or about three years working with him, but two years in France. And then since then, I've been back running the clothing now shoe company and then also amidst in that too i also started acting i kind of figured it's it's another long story but i was able to get into acting the way i I wanted to originally so now i'm pursuing that as well okay so with parkour how did you even find out about parkour well nobody knew what it was i mean i found it in 2016 and back then I mean, there might have been. 2016? Oh, sorry, 2006. (laughs) Sorry, 2006, (laughs) dude. Found like 12 years ago. Goodness. But back then, there must have been, if there was a thousand people in the United States doing it back then, I'd be shocked. There's no way there was a thousand people doing it. Maybe like 400 people or something. Maybe. So what had happened was, I think a few years before, Ripley's, believe it or not, had done some type of feature on this Yamakaze group in France that jumped over stuff. I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was a teenager. Maybe... I was in high school. Maybe it was pre-high school. I don't know when the feature came out on Ripley's. I can't How old remember. Are you? I think we're about the same age. I'm 32 now. Yeah, 32 yeah, yeah. Now. So 2006 was like just out of college or just I was out still of high in school. College. Yeah. yeah, I was still in college. But I had seen this Ripley's Believe It or Not show years before. It lodged in my brain as something cool. And then I was living in this house. And one day I had the impulse to ask guys, hey, does anyone know what like that jumpy thing was? I don't know where that thought came from. Like it must have been divine, but I have no idea where that thought came from. And someone said, yeah, look up Yamakaze. And this was 2006. YouTube was only a couple years old. I was going to say, is YouTube even around in 2006? No, there was like Google video back then, yeah. right? Because like YouTube wasn't owned by Google yet. Like yeah. <laughs> so went on YouTube and found a couple videos and then saw videos of David Bell. There might have been 10 parkour videos on YouTube back then. Like nothing, like nothing. About a year later, I made a parkour video. And you could still find it if you typed parkour and did like a quick search. You could find my video anywhere in the world. People could find my video. Now, like, good luck. I can't even find it. I know what it's called. It's, it's like that dense with parkour videos. But anyway, back then there was a couple videos online. I saw it. Immediately it resonated with me. And I started training. And Where did you even figure out how to train for something like that? When there's like no resources online. Right. Well, that is the big difference now is in today's world, you have tons of online tutorials and now you have gyms. There's like 80 parkour gyms around the country. There's international events. There's lots of ways to learn parkour. But back then, we just watched videos and tried to copy (laughs) what they did. Like it was pretty rudimentary, but then also really pure in that way as well. Did you have any like big accidents where you're like, I'm going to jump this span and then bite it? Is that how you figure it out just trial and error when there's nobody teaching you yeah you trial and error but then when no one's teaching you you also have no confidence until you're ready so i think that there's like a natural almost safety line when you have to figure it out yourself because you don't know where the limits are it's like anything i suppose driving cars would be the same way uh, any type of sport when you see someone else push the limit then you know oh that's possible and then you try it and you get hurt but when you have nobody else doing it you're like i don't even know if this jump is possible so you don't do it either you're a crazy man you have a bunch of adrenaline and you do it and those people don't last because they get hurt and they're in it for the wrong reasons or you know you're ready and you do it so i think there's something natural about about learning it on your own which is kind of cool how do you find that limit like how do you find that limit when you know you see someone else do it and you can see that it's possible when it's on your own is just like the innate i'm gonna go for it now like i feel like i've got that yeah it just takes more time it just takes more time and that time is gone now i mean i think it was a special time in parkour i remember i lived in mexico in college i did a study abroad in mexico and in 2005 i was watching there's a surfing movie called i think it's called riding giants is a surfing movie and it talks about the origins of big wave surfing i think that's what the movie's about so anyway it's a really cool surfing movie and i remember they talked a little bit about like the origins of surfing in hawaii and these servers that like lived off the land and surfed every day i remember at that moment in mexico i was thinking like whoa i wish i had the opportunity to be a part of something like that when it started because if you're going to be a surfer now, like good luck trying to get in on the, the famous breaks. Like it's going to be crowded with surfers. You can't get in. But if you were in the 60s and you were surfing, talk about a dreamland. So then oddly enough, a year or two later, I'm here doing parkour when nobody is doing it. So it was just a purer time back then. How did you go from, you know, this guy who's looking up parkour videos on YouTube to starting to do parkour to getting... I just did it and... I had a couple people that were kind of interested in it, so they kind of followed me a little bit, but 
they weren't as passionate as me, so they didn't progress as quickly. How did you find other people that were interested in parkour? It was like MySpace? No, I, I never looked, man. Oh. And that's one thing that led to a lot of rifts in the parkour world later because I became, there was a time there where I was by far the most controversial figure in the parkour world, internationally, like a controversial, hated, loved figure, like crazy, 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 like Donald Trump level. But in the parkour world, there was a time. And the thing was, I never searched anybody out. I just did it. And I think that came from a purity. People saw that as like a selfishness and a pride, but it was, they just misinterpreted it. It was, I'm doing this for me. And so I don't need other people to do it with me. I went to the gymnastics club at Oregon State. I joined the club, the gymnastics club. And then there was a guy named Brian Morrison, who's still a friend of mine. He actually was an employee of mine for a while. And he was interested in what I was doing. And so he became the closest thing I've ever had to a training partner would be Brian Morrison. So he kind of found me and saw what I was doing and liked it. But I never searched anybody out. I never tried to find training partners. I, except for David Bell, I pursued training with him because he was my idol. But besides him, I just did it for myself. So how does that happen where you go from watching David in one of the 10 videos <laughs> on YouTube about parkour to actually going to France and actually getting to work with him? Right. Well, like most things, everything's like it's baby steps, right? And recently I've been following this idea. Well, I've had this idea for about five years, but recently I've been following a different kind of a tweaked version of it. The idea is that Anything that excites you, you follow it. I've tried to plan my life and it just doesn't work when I plan it. What works is when I something interests me and I kind of open the door and see what happens. Something else interests me and I open the door and see what happens. I call it following your excitement. And it's not my idea. It's an idea I found from someone. But So that's how parkour developed. So I started doing it because I liked the idea of parkour. I wanted to become strong. I was kind of a physically weak person. I had suffered from Crohn's disease for a few years and was really skinny and weak. And then I started to like build these muscles and I had abs and I had shoulders and it was really cool. So then I get done with college and what am I going to do? I had a temp job at Nike and I realized I wanted to do parkour and then pursue a career in it. And the powerful thought for me that still sustains me when I doubt maybe what I'm doing sometimes is that I saw parkour as an infant industry and I saw it becoming an industry, a big industry. And the fear at the time in 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, the fear was that corporations were going to come in and take over the sport. Like we've seen with everything, if you will, call it selling out. I'm older and wiser now, so I see just as the progression of growth. But at the time, we we're very scared of companies coming in and trying to own it. And I felt like I was in a position where because I loved the sport, I could help it grow in the right way. Right. So it was like, the people that need to guide the sport are the ones that don't want to guide it. The ones that don't want to make money from it are the ones that should be at the head of that industry because then they can make sure it maintains its purity. If we let corporations like Nike, Adidas, Under Armour come in and try to take over the sport, they're going to do it for money. Nike doesn't give a crap about parkour. They never will. What they will care about is the money it can bring them if it gets big enough. That's how corporations and big companies work. So to have someone that started with the purity of the sport, I felt like I was in the right position to start companies. So I started a parkour gym. Then I started a parkour clothing company. Then I saw this opportunity with David Bell, kind of a dormant, like the god of the parkour world, the Michael Jordan of the parkour world, but not doing anything. And so I saw an opportunity to partner with him to basically sell clothing, if you will. And so that's, I reached out to him and forged a relationship. Okay. And then you went out there for a couple of years. Right. Yeah. So I forged a relationship. I flew out there. I think it was October, 2010. I flew out there to meet with him, had a nice meeting. And we basically had a verbal agreement that he was going to then sign a contract with Take Flight, officially endorse the company, and we'd be off and running. So that kicked it off. And then about a year later, I was thinking about it, and I realized that the only way to ever really, really work with David would be to move to France and work with him. To this day, he doesn't speak English. Back then, I didn't speak French. So I said, if we're going to actually have a relationship where we are working closely together, He's endorsing the company. He's the figurehead of our brand and the figurehead of the sport. I need to like get to know him at a personal level. Not only that, but I want to learn from him. Like he is the god of. I mean, that's a big word, but like it's it's fitting actually. Like it's the Bruce Lee of. If you want to learn martial arts, like who wouldn't want to learn from Bruce Lee? That's David Bell to the parkour world, and so I wanted to learn from him directly. And so there's a lot of ideas and dreams that were tied up in working with him. The biggest one, I think, was to just learn parkour from him. But then, of course, I had this business opportunity. I have a business mind. It just flows from me. So, I like the idea of just saying you see the opportunity instead of waiting for something to happen. Or like, you're just like, I'm going to France. 
Yeah. And I'm going to make it happen. It was crazy. I really made that happen. It was weird because even when I went to France, so I didn't speak French, so I had a translator. And then David didn't speak English, so he had a translator, like his manager, a guy named G. Danoday, really cool guy, older man, kind of like a father figure for David in this part of his life. And so it was like a four-chain communication, right? It's like with my lawyers. My lawyers talk to their lawyers, talk to the client. It's the same thing with David, through translators even. And I told him I was moving to France. They were all on board with it, but there was nothing definitive. It wasn't like, I told him the plan. The plan was I was going to move to France, live in the south of France for three months, and then move to Paris and work with him. But nothing was in writing. Nothing was guaranteed. It was just seemed to be a good intentioned idea or hope. So I moved to France. I'm living in Avignon. It's like used to be, the Pope used to live in Avignon. It's for like a hundred years or something like that. It was like the Vatican of the Catholic world. I don't know. It's a really cool city. It has a big giant wall around it. I was living there for three months before I moved to Paris. And two months in, Guy died. He passed away, dude. He had stomach cancer. I went to his funeral and it was really sad. And I had met him that one time I went in October, but I didn't know him besides our emails. But that was the link to David. That was the link. And so when Guy passed away, I was like, oh, crap. I don't know what's going to happen. So I had written a couple messages to David, but he wasn't on social media. So I moved to Paris hoping I would somehow run into him or find him or convince him to meet me. It was like starting from ground zero. The connection, the trust was completely lost. But I had a vision and a plan and I was had conviction. And so I moved ahead and through random friends that we met, it was crazy how we ended up meeting up and then we became friends. Does that make sense? I give super long-winded answers. No, that's good. Uh, the, the the story is interesting, and a lot of times people always want to wait for the perfect plan to fall into place, and then you you realize you have to show up in country, things fall through, and uh, you figure out how to make it happen. Dude, anyways. yeah, I went to a country. I didn't speak the language, and my translator wasn't there, and his our connection was gone. You, you have to make stuff happen in life. Like This is what I've realized more so recently than ever before in my life, is that nobody cares about you. Nobody. Maybe your mom. Maybe your mom. And you know what? She cares enough about you to make you dinner and give you a hug. But that's it. Nobody gives a crap about who you are or what you're doing in life until you become somebody, until you have something they want. You have to forge your way. And a couple people in life maybe got lucky. Maybe a talent scout saw them. Maybe they inherited a bunch of money. Who knows? They fell into the right place. They wrote a song and it became famous. But most people in life we're all nobodies until you make something of yourself. You have to forge yourself into somebody. No one's going to do it for you ever, ever. Even if you get to the top, no one gives a crap about you. You could be in the NBA and guess what? You break your leg. Well, on to the next guy. Fill your spot. Nobody cares about you. They don't. So you have to always forge yourself, always move ahead and make something for your life. It's kind of like cold water on your head. Also like enlightening, if you will. Like lessons I've learned is nobody's coming to save you and everything's your fault. When you realize that like people want to make up stories about like, oh, if you know someone else is gonna swoop in and, and make this happen, and when you realize that nobody's coming, everything's your fault. It's a little sobering at first, but then you realize it's also on you to make it all happen. And when you realize that you have the power to go after whatever it is you want, like who's stopping you from moving to France? No one. Nobody cares about you, but that means nobody's gonna stop you from going after the thing that you want either. That's empowering. And then you're like, hey, I'm just going to go do that thing instead of waiting around for someone else to care about this more than I am. I love that idea. In fact, that was the exact epiphany I had, I want to say, two years ago or three years ago. Word for word, it was, no one's going to save you, Adam. Nobody. Right? And I have my fingers in the pie. I mean, I got some irons in the fire. Like, I swear to you, I'm one call away from being a millionaire. Like, <laughs> like there's, And I've been that way for like five years now. And I realized... You can't wait for that phone call. Nobody is going to save you. It was those exact words that I might have even posted it on my Instagram or something. So that's really powerful. And then I had never really thought of this one. I'll have to process it. Your idea of it's all your fault. I'll have to think about that one. But it's a, definitely a good direction. You take responsibility for who you are and where you are in life. Because if you don't, then you'll never get anywhere. Well, if it's all your fault, then even if it's not your fault, if you act like it's your fault, then at least you have the power to change it versus if you constantly worry about it being someone else's fault or someone else's fault or they did this or they did that. You can't do anything about that. Even if it's not your fault and you act like it's your fault, then you at least give yourself power to change something. Man, that's so true. It's like as a business owner, there's been so many times when somebody just messed up and it wasn't me. And there's been times where it was like, I know it wasn't me. Like I did 
everything humanly possible to make sure this person knew their job and they still effed it up. And then at the end of the day, you're sitting at your, in your office late at night and you're thinking about it and the only solution is I have to be better. That's the only solution. Because yeah, this person messed up, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It, it at happened. the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It happened and I'm responsible and I'm the owner or I'm the visionary or whatever. I'm the dreamer. You have to take responsibility. Even when objectively, it clearly wasn't your fault. It's still your fault. Yep. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. That's awesome. So you end up in Paris. You're out of a translator. You're rebuilding your connections from scratch. I don't know how much you want to get into it, but like, where did that relationship with David go? And then what did that mean for you and like your next projects that you were working on? So I was in France for three months and I pretty much learned French in three months <laughs> with Rosetta Stone and a couple kind of friends that I met. People that I consider friends now, but at the time were pretty much acquaintances. So pretty much learned French. And then for some reason, I was always able to understand David. So like to this day, if I watch a news telecast in French, I don't know, maybe I'll pick up 40%, maybe 50%. Depends on the topic. Depends on the topic, obviously. But but with David, I understand everything he says. Like 95% of what he says, I get. So something, that, I don't know if there's a connection or he just speaks so simply. You're just paying attention extra hard, you know? Yeah. Or he, again, he talks about the things that I care about. So it's that the verbiage and the language. And I never had a French teacher, but if I ever did, it would be David because I would talk to him for hours. So I'm used to his voice in the same way a kid's used to their mother's voice or something. I'm used to, the, to David's voice. But anyway, back then, I pretty much had learned French well enough to communicate. And I had met a couple people at Guy's funeral. And then one day I'm training in Lise. So the parkour is from a city called Lise. Lise and every, but usually we say Lise. And every Cucarones, it's like 10 miles, 12 miles from Paris proper. So I found an apartment in every and was training in Lise one day. And I ran across those two people, Jonathan and Alexander, that I had met at the funeral that had been kind of David's kind of acquaintances. I ran across them one day in Lise randomly. And then they were going to hang out with David. So they said, oh yeah, come along or something like that. So then we went, I think we went out to Paris and had dinner one night. And then after that, David and I just became friends. It was like an instant match. And I think he trusted me at that point. That wasn't a brand new person. David doesn't let people into his inner circle, but because of the trust we had built through Guy, his name's Guy, but in French it's Guy. He trusted me and we just became friends. So, And you were there for two years? Yeah, I was there on and off. So I, I say that I was in France for two years, but it was actually 15 months, like 15 months in a week, I think. My initial stay was 10 months, three months in the south of France, seven in Paris. I think I came back for three months. Then I went back for six weeks. Then I came back for six weeks and I went back for three months. So it was like that. So I was going to ask how you figured out the visa stuff and everything like that. Oh yeah, that's a crazy story. So I got a visa, went to the French embassy in San Francisco and got a visa, sejour visa, like a long stay visa that lasts a year. So at the end of a year, or at the end of my 10 month stay, when I was going back home, I realized I needed to renew this visa. Now you don't have to. In French, France and America, we're friends. So you can go there for three months, come back to the States for a day and go back for three months. If you want to spend $1,000 on travel, then you just could fly round trip every three months and never need a visa to be in France. And you can't work in France, but you can live in France. It's no problem. And even if you didn't have a visa, the French police don't care. The French police are super cool. Everyone respects Americans, especially if you speak French and you're cool. The French people are amazing people. I never had a problem. They were never rude to me. So you don't really need a visa. But I didn't know what my future held in France. And I built this relationship with David that obviously had a lot of potential business-wise. And then as much as me, he's a brother to me. So it's family-wise. So I want to have as much flexibility as I can to come back to France. So long story short, I go to renew my visa. I spend, I think, eight hours at the Mairie, je pense. I think that's how you say it. In every city in France, they have like... I think that's how you say it. Forgive me, French people. I could be wrong. It's like the DMV of France, but it does everything that's governmental in that city. So I spent like eight hours there waiting through three different lines. Like you wait in a line to get a number in France, which then puts you in another line where you get a number to go in another line. So eight hours later, I get to the counter. I give them my paperwork. I wasn't there two minutes. I said, I'd like to renew my visa. She looks at my paperwork and she says, sorry, we can't renew it. You're not here legally. I said, what are you talking about? I have a visa. And she goes, well, when you came in to France, you were supposed to call this number and verify your health insurance. And you didn't do that. So this expired and you weren't here legally. And I said, what are you talking about? I've been paying health insurance through the agency or whatever. And they said, yeah, but you didn't report it to the government. 
some pedantic bureaucracy, French level red tape. And so they wouldn't let me renew the visa. So that was life, I guess. <laughs> so what happened from there? You just had a bounce? I mean, then three days later, two days later, I came home. And then I was here for three months. And then, like I said, I went back for six weeks and I came back. And then I went back for three months and came back. So so then you, you wrap up your time in France and you come back here? Yeah. Well, after the two-year span, pretty much. Yeah, it really ended. So I moved out there in March 2011. And then it was my last trip there to see David was February 2013. So, What did you come back to the States hoping to do? Oh, man, we had so much going on. The idea was to grow Take Flight. So Take Flight was growing at a phenomenal rate. And so we wanted to keep growing that. And then when I was in France, I realized, so we marketed ourselves. As soon as David signed on as endorsing the company, I changed the tagline of Take Flight to the official clothing of parkour. Because we had the endorsement of the founder of parkour. It's like if Bruce Lee said, hey, this is my clothing company, then it would be the official clothing of Jeet Kune Do. That's how it would be. So... That's how I interpreted it anyway. So in 2010, I changed the slogan to the official clothing of parkour, which in retrospect may have been a mistake because that caused a lot of animosity in the parkour world. But anyway, we were growing at a phenomenal rate and I realized that if we were going to be true to both the company's tagline title, the official of parkour, and if we wanted to keep growing, the future was in shoes. So I realized that clothing was not the future of parkour. It had a place, but shoes were actually the essential element. So you look at like skateboarding. What's the essential element to skateboarding? I don't know either, but, <laughs> but my guess is it's a skateboard because you can't skate without a skateboard. You can skate without a skate park. You can skate without a helmet. You can skate without skater shoes, but you can't skate without a skateboard. So it doesn't mean those other things aren't important. They're super important for the industry and the sport of skateboarding, but the essential element is the skateboard. And so with parkour... It's cool to have gyms. You don't need them. It's cool to have good joggers, good pants, you know, a good tee, but you don't need them. But what you do need is shoes. You do need shoes. So the epiphany was we have to pivot towards shoes. And so in 2013, I think we started designing our first parkour shoe. And so that was the future as well. So when I came back, the biggest focus was to build Take Flight. And then also at that time, we were building parkour.com as well. So those are the two focuses. So... I want to hit on both of those, but uh, with shoes. So shoes are tough because a lot of people will do apparel and apparel is like, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's doable. And a lot of people have done it. Shoes seem like their own little monster where you have to figure out molds, feet sizes, like all sorts of different things. Shoes are a monster. Yeah. So how did you just go from like, we're doing some apparel stuff to like, Hey, we're, we're tackling this shoe. Man, I don't know. In the context of this impossible podcast, it's like, I haven't thought about this stuff in a long time, Joel. And so I'm like, holy crap, that's kind of impossible. I don't know how I did some of this stuff. I kid you not. It was just like I had conviction and I believed in it and I knew it was possible because someone else had done it. So we did it. Were you like sourcing them from China? Or right. Like, well, to take okay. a step back. So when I first started Take Flight, I was very certain that I would never get into shoes because I knew that was complicated. But I knew clothing wasn't that complicated, especially because you can source blanks. And especially because of the growing industry of clothing, like you can source some really high quality blanks. So it was kind of a rebranding strategy in the beginning with Take Flight, which is what Under Armour did. They just rebranded their stuff and then they ended up growing an empire. So it seemed to me to be a good strategy and a good formula. But then when I had this idea to pivot to shoes, oh no, how do we do this? So I had gone to college. I went to Oregon State, graduated in 2007. And in my whole college experience, I only met three people that I admired, three fellow students that I said, this person's going somewhere. Everybody else was either, look, I just don't respect, I don't respect college. I'm sorry. I do not respect it. And anyone who has a master's won't like me. Anyone who has a PhD won't like me. I was in college with a bunch of dummies. And maybe I should have gone to an Ivy League college. I had people tell me that because maybe I was just too smart for Oregon State. But in any case, I was surrounded by dummies. It was ridiculous. But there was three people that stood out to me. And I said, I'm going to work with these people for sure. One is a guy named Cyan Cooper. And when I was getting into parkour, he had moved to China and was learning Mandarin and was trying to convince me to move to China and learn Mandarin. He's like, don't do parkour. Come to China. He goes, the future of business is in China. You got to learn Mandarin. And I was like, yeah, I kind of want to. And I had taken Chinese in college because I saw the business opportunity in it. So what he said made sense. But I was like, I got to pursue parkour, man. That's my dream. And I want to be in films and I have to do this. So he had gone to China and followed his path. 
and he had started a shoe sourcing company. So I was like, this is perfect because one of three people that I admired that I saw potential in is now doing something awesome as well. I want to make shoes. He's my go-to guy. I trust him. He's a good businessman and extremely intelligent. So I basically leaned on him and we made shoes together. So that's how we did it. I don't know what I would have done, man. I don't know if I, if he hadn't been there, I don't know who I would have found. I'm sure I would have found somebody where there's a will, there's a way, especially when something's been pioneered. If you're pioneering something that's never been done before, I wish you luck and I hope you get there, but that's crazy. But it's like, we're making shoes. Like people have been making shoes for thousands of years. Like it's, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're and you're, just in, you're shoes. in Portland of all places. So like there's people who know how to make shoes. This there. is the shoe industry, man, of the capital of the world of athletic shoes and Nike's here. Adidas moved here to be close to Nike. Under Armour has moved here now. If there's one place, it's like all the industry knowledge is here. So it was a place to be, but it worked out. So do you think about that much? Like uh, the fact that you put yourself in play. Uh, maybe you didn't choose Portland, but when you saw parkour was happening in France, you got to France and you got there physically. And then back here, you're like, maybe you could start a shoe company in Atlanta or Dallas or someplace random like that. But being here, is that helpful? Do you have you thought about that, or is it just I like never a happy thought about coincidence? That. I think it's a happy coincidence. The only thing that might be more than coincidence is kind of a bigger vision of how Nike influenced my thinking in life. So obviously, a lot of the branding of Take Flight. It's very similar in a lot of ways to Nike and brand Jordan because those are the brands I grew up with. So naturally, like what's in my subconscious, what's in my style is what I saw growing up and it's or what resonated with me. That was Nike and brand Jordan. So perhaps there was some overlap there that inspired me or gave me confidence, but that might be a bit of a reach. If nothing else, I could definitely say the style of Take Flight is influenced very much by Nike's style and brand Jordan's style. But in terms of being in Portland and making shoes, I'd probably just say happy coincidence. I feel like I know way more. When I'm in Portland, I just think about shoes in general more. Like shoes huh, and apparel maybe, in, maybe. in general. Like it influences just the overall vibe of the city versus like if I was in Philadelphia or like Chicago, like there's no shoe companies based there. And so really, okay. I really like the idea of like you saw stuff happening in France and you moved to France. Maybe being in Portland didn't make you want to start a shoe company, but having all these shoe companies around makes it like more feasibly like, oh yeah, that's actually a thing. People have started shoe companies in the past. Maybe it seems more palpable. Maybe it's part of the collective consciousness. I'll tell you this, that I tested Nike shoes. I'm still a Nike shoe tester. And I became a Nike shoe tester in 2001 when I was a freshman in high school. So I spent 10 years wear testing their shoes and understanding how to think about shoes. There's, there's no doubt that that's helped me develop Take Flight Shoes because I understand like how would you evaluate an athletic shoe? Do you even know the technical terms, Joel? Like most people don't know this <laughs> stuff. Like, but if you wear it for 10 years and you fill out Nike reports and you have people asking you questions like the head shoe testers at Nike, then it's like, whoa, that kind of breathes into you or kind of... It's funny how that influences you without you even thinking about it. Yeah, so that's for sure was there, for sure. The other piece of that story that I wanted to hear about is uh, you said you started developing parkour.com. Right. How did you get that domain name? Oh, this and, is such uh, a tragedy. This story is a tragedy, man. <laughs> The story is a tragedy. Okay. I won't talk about the history of it too much. In fact, I'd rather not talk about it at all. But the, I own it now, and <laughs> that's good enough for me. What happened was is David and I got a hold of it. And at this time, social media was banging. Like now social media sucks, to be fair with you. Compared to what it used to be, it's still a great thing, but it used to be the Wild West and anyone could make it on social media. Now they got Facebook went corporate, they got their algorithms and it's a mess, man. So I built the Take Flight social media to 80,000. I don't think I could do that again. If I started now, I don't think I could do it. And maybe that's just because I don't believe in myself, but I think it's because sometimes in life there's timing. And I think this goes back to maybe your idea of making yourself into something is the thing about life is things are always changing. And so if you see an opportunity, I firmly believe you have to take it because that opportunity might not be there in a year or two years or three years. Think about the girls. I like to relate things to girls often. You see a girl you like, you want to ask her out, ask her out. Because if you don't, then in two weeks, she might be dating somebody. Like talk about a short timeline. Like business timelines are, are the same thing. It's like I saw an opportunity in the market and I saw a way to exploit it through social media. It was because of the growing popularity of Facebook that I was able to grow Take Flight. That brings us back to Parker.com. So- in 2012, when we got a hold of parkour.com, it was... Did you buy it? Yeah, I, I bought it. I mean, we bought a house. You're going to get something. How's going to get something? We didn't steal it. We bought okay, it. Okay. <laughs> we bought it. Can I ask how much or... 
No, I, I can't talk okay. about that. Okay. Talk about that. No, okay. No. Good question, though. Good question. No. People would like to know. I won't tell you how much I bought it for. I'll tell you how much I'll sell it for. At least seven figures. So I realized that this was the center hub of the parkour world, obviously. And that's a domain issue. Like, how come the dot-com is king? But it is. It just is, de facto. So we own parkour.com. So the plan was to build out a great website and it started with social media. Well, it's pretty easy back then, especially with a credible name like parkour.com. You just post stuff on Facebook and people share it and people say, oh my gosh, parkour.com is it. I'll follow it. So it was really easy to go viral. And at the time too, so another project that was simultaneous, I mean, I was doing multiple projects, obviously Take Flight, now parkour.com, but David Bell was a project too. As I, as I said earlier, he was like a reclusive legend. I said, we need to bring him out into the market. We need to make a brand out of him. We need to make him, not to exploit him, but to give him a life because he's not succeeding in life. He's, when I saw him, he was depressed. He's living with his mom. He was not in a good place. And I pulled him out of that and gave him hope and gave him direction and launched his website and his YouTube and his Instagram and his, there was an Instagram back then, Facebook and Twitter. And so his Facebook now has, it was over a million fans like a year ago. Now it's like 998 or something. But now all of a sudden we have Take Flight, which had like 70,000 followers, one of the three biggest pages in the Parker world. Now we have David Bell's official page on Facebook, which is going viral. Like now it's at 50,000. Now we're launching Parker.com on Facebook. It's like all these things are working together synergistically to create this viral like hurricane tornado of followers and energy. So we never really got past stage one though, which was Facebook. <laughs> Because David got mad and deleted the page. <laughs> this is why it's a tragedy. So we got to 150,000 followers. Then David and I had a falling out and he deleted the Facebook page. David Bell or parkour.com? He deleted the Facebook page, parkour.com Facebook page. So I was super admin on his Facebook page. So I built his Facebook page because I was the instigator that created it. And then I designed all the posts. And then I would be like, hey, David, this is an awesome picture I found of you when you were 15. Let's post it on Facebook. Tell me something about it. So then he'd tell me, I'd scribe it, I'd translate it to English and I'd post it on his Facebook page. That's how we like built his Facebook page so big. So I'm, I'm super admin on, on David Bell's Facebook page. And of course I'm super admin on parkour.com. But David's my friend, he's my brother. Like we're in a long-term relationship in terms of business and friendship. And I have no concern about him going AWOL. So I have make him super admin on the parkour.com page. And one day he literally went AWOL. Like in the span of seven days, he went from Adam's my brother to Adam's a demon. I'm going AWOL. So he and I were having this very, I still have it. I think I still have it saved probably. I couldn't find it. He, we were having this very tumultuous conversation on Facebook Messenger and I'm calming him down. He's like, Adam, like, you know, saying all this stuff about me that's not true because the thing was too to back up a little bit. And if you don't care about these details, I don't have to tell you. But if anything, hopefully listeners can realize that life is complicated and business happens and there's something I learned from this, which I should have learned before, but it's this idea of freezing your accounts. Like if you ever get any inclination of something bad going down, freeze the accounts. So basically David was super admin and I thought there was no way we would break up because we were good friends. And when I say break up, I mean friendship. We're not Obviously I'm not, I'm not gay, you know, which is, I don't mind people being gay, but I use language that sometimes would insinuate. No, like that's absurd. But in a friendship business sense, like we're together, you know what I'm saying? So he was super admin on the account. And if I just demoted him to like admin, he couldn't have deleted the account. But he was super admin and that's when he deleted it. And he removed me. So, oh, okay. Yeah. It was 150,000 followers. That was in 2013, I think. We were going viral. So the tragedy is I'm sure we'd have a million plus followers now because everything we posted went viral, everything. And that was still in the viral time. Facebook isn't viral anymore. It's like a news agency. And then, of course, you would have leveraged that to get into Instagram. We'd probably have, you know, the premier 300, 400,000 person Instagram page, maybe a million Instagram. Who knows where we would have gone? But when you have a million dedicated followers and everything you do goes viral and you have products behind it because now we can market something. See, a lot of these people on social media, like you have 80,000 followers. Great. But you're not selling anything. It's so like they want to sell posts like, hey, for 40 bucks, I'll post about your company. It's like maybe that works for some people, but not for me. But we had a shoe company behind us selling really good shoes to a market that really wanted them. And we have the leader in the industry, the icon of the industry supporting it. The biggest social media pages like we're poised for millions and millions of dollars coming down the pipeline. But he took that one off. So, so how do you recover from something like that? 
you don't, man. <laughs> I mean, it takes a lot of time. We're still recovering from it. The Instagram, we had to restart and some other things happened along the way, which are too complicated to explain in a, in a podcast like this. But we now have a 40,000 person Instagram page. Facebook is 20,000. No one really cares about it too much. So we kind of just focus on Instagram right now and weather the storm. And the poker industry changed as well. More players entered the market. The social media game changed. So has parkour as like a viral concept died down? It has. Yeah. There's no question about it, in my opinion. So I, I think what happened with Take Flight, like I could be wrong about this, but I bet a lot of money that I'm right. I think parkour was kind of a viral sensation for a while. And so it had a lot more social energy than it has now. Now, the industry is vastly bigger, maybe three or four or five times bigger than it was in 2012. But the social energy is way lower. And so I think at Take Flight, we were in the right place at the right time and people were buying our stuff because it said parkour on it and it was cool. But now the industry has settled into more of a stable place where people follow brands and they follow influencers and they listen to what their instructors say. So it's a much slower industry now. And so that's really changed our ability to sell products. So we were really able to, I think, to push product back then. And now we at least haven't found a way to push product. We have to like just do a good job marketing now just make really good shoes just make really good shoes yeah and form really good relationships and we just have to behave differently so how do you recover from that that alone wasn't crushing because you just start again but then the industry changed which was crushing so take flight went from this crazy exponential growth curve to an exponential opposite curve and so that's what's taken about four years now to like find the bottom with parkour.com though, like you still have some assets. Like you still have like things that you can use to grow. How so? Well, parkour.com is a great domain name, right? It's a great domain name. I mean, but that's all it is. And this is goes back to your point of no one's here to save you. So I recently launched an e-commerce website on parkour.com. I figured it's getting a lot of organic traffic. We now have 40,000 Instagram followers that we can purpose to the site. Why not put parkour products on there? It just makes sense. It's a no brainer, right? Because it was sitting pretty idle. We had, had more of a marketing site to try to get us like consultation jobs, which worked a little bit. But bigger picture, it's like parkour.com can become the Amazon of parkour. Go to bodybuilding.com and look how much product they sell. That's what parkour.com is poised to be. So I launched an e-commerce website like three weeks ago, poised for the Christmas season. Very cool. And contacted like the 12 biggest parkour brands to say, hey, look, we want to list your products on our website. Now, I don't know if this is me. I don't know if it's the parkour industry. I don't know if it's professionalism. I think it's probably the latter two. I don't think it has anything to do with me. But only one of those 12 brands has responded and they declined. It's like what we offered them is free marketing and free sales. It doesn't cost you a penny. We do all the work. And it's actually more of a, an Amazon model where we list your products and then we take a portion and, we, and then we send you the order details. But of course, the idea is to move towards wholesaling and things like that. But none of these brands are interested in doing it. And I think it speaks to the parkour industry and how immature it is in both emotionally immature, but also as an industry itself, it's underdeveloped. So anyway, the point being is you'd think that people would come on board and be like, I want to be a part of parkour.com, but nobody who's anybody wants to. The only people that want to be a part of parkour.com are people who are nobodies who see parkour.com as being bigger than them, which it is. And then they can leverage parkour.com to become somebody, which is, that's how the world works. It's hierarchies. But the point is, what assets do we have? We have thousands of amazing photos that take flight owns. So, of course, just like Elon Musk is going to leverage the technology for Tesla and SpaceX, I leverage our resources that take flight. Have you thought about merging that instead of just like doing an Amazon type thing on it? Just using that as like an e-commerce portal for take flight? Well, all the products right now on Parker.com are take flight products. So in some ways, it's that thing. But I just see them being separate entities in the bigger vision. So Take Flight can exist itself as a brand. I don't see even Take Flight being the number one selling brand on parkour.com. There are some great brands out there that have better followings, that make better products, like better clothing products than Take Flight. It's a different market, so they're better in the sense that they are higher quality, but they cost more. So I think Take Flight is the best value proposition in the parkour world by far. No one even comes close to our value proposition. But if you want a higher quality product and you're willing to spend 80 bucks for a sweatshirt, then there's companies that do that in the Parker world. So I don't even see Take Flight being the number one selling brand on Parker.com. It's just one of the multitudes of the brands that create an awesome industry. 
it just so happens to be the one brand that's willing to work with parkour.com. Yeah. So that's cool. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. With that, I'm curious how you manage all the different projects you have going on because, you know, if they were all one rolled up entity like parkour.com was take flight was the gym was all this other stuff was if you rolled it all together it'd be one thing but having them separated how do you manage that personally and then like attention and energy wise like how do you split that up between you know the multiple things you're working on sure now we're getting into some good ideas there's energy wise there's financial management then you could say energy management creative management might be the most important which relates to energy because what i've noticed in life being an actor now too and running take flight and running parkour.com and being an athlete it's like how do you transition between all those mediums because if i was focused on one thing i'd be way more creative way more powerful but i disperse my energy and the question is i've asked this many times over the years has that been worth it am i scared to commit to one thing is it because i'm just so talented is it just because i'm so creative i don't know what the answer is yet. I'm still trying to sort through it. But I will say it's much more difficult to try to be creatively innovative in four different industries or three rather because I just trained. I'm not innovating. But I try to innovate as an actor. I try to innovate with parkour.com. I try to innovate with Take Flight. How do you innovate in three different platforms? And that's very tricky. The other question I was going to ask is how much are you still training as a tracer? Right. So I don't train as a tracer too much. So the thing that got me into parkour that really inspired me was how physically fit David Bell was. The thing was, as I said, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in 2004. And when I was diagnosed, I was like 5'10", 105 pounds. I was dying. Like my body was shutting down. So I had always been really skinny. I had lifted weights. I was the type of guy at school that would be at the gym on Friday night. Everyone else would be at a frat party and I'd be lifting weights in the gym or shooting hoops, you know, like I was that type of dedication my whole life and I still am that way. I was at, what is it? Like one o'clock right now, two o'clock? I was in my office till 6 a.m. yesterday or 5.30 rather, building a new website. So I've always had that type of dedication, but the muscle was never there. And so what inspired me about David Bell was he was doing something that seemed fun, that he enjoyed, and he had built this incredible like dynamic strength and flexibility. And I said, whoa, I feel like that's going to do the same thing for me. So what really got me into parkour wasn't this idea of freedom and jumping, which a lot of kids now find in the parkour gyms and tricking and gymnastics and such. But I found the warrior spirit of parkour is what appealed to me, being strong mentally and physically, overcoming your limits, those ideas. And it's completely different energy. The parkour energy now is completely different than it was 10 years ago, completely different. It used to be a warrior energy, and now it's a kind of a social media, fun, technical energy. So the point is, is that I got into parkour because I wanted to get in shape for the most simplified, topical version of that sentence. And I did that, and I'm there now. So parkour, I see parkour as a training tool for my body, not as anything that's going to take me anywhere specifically as a human being. Does that make sense? Like I'm not going to become a professional. I'm not going to become the best in the world anymore. I'm not going to like become, get some major sponsorship deals like I was pursuing when I first started. I'm just there just to maintain my body and have a great working body my whole life. So, so I incorporate parkour training with other dynamic physical training whenever I feel like it, I do it, but it's not too often. And parkour is really hard, man. Holy <laughs> crap, dude. The warrior spirit of parkour. Look, you want to go train, have fun, jump around with your friends, swing on some bars. Parkour is great. Have fun, jump in a foam pit, do some flips, jump off a springboard, have a great time. If you want to like train like the David Bell method of training, like that's scary, man. That's scary. And it's one of the reasons that David Bell would not train with me very often because he knew how scary that mentality is. I mean, if you're pushing your body to the end, man. And so it's like scary to think about because like that's how I think about parkour. So to say like, do I want to go do that? I mean, CrossFit's like baby talk, man. It's like baby talk compared to parkour. CrossFit's great. I admire it. It's tough. But like, come do parkour with me. And like, you'll be like, holy crap, I'm an infant. I know nothing. So it's difficult to want to bridge that gap and want to kind of go to that level. So when I do do parkour, it's kind of like, okay, I'll just kind of dumb it down. And does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. So with the three different things you mentioned, splitting your energy and splitting your time and focus and finances. So I've done that a little bit. I've got impossible as a business. And then I've got uh, this paleo, keto, low carb uh, nutrition business. And then I have this uh, movement and mobility app. And before I was even doing more stuff. And you know, I was launching small websites that are interesting here over there, like scratching little itches and be like, I just want to make stuff. I'm used to making stuff. And so at one point, I think I had like five or six different websites. I was just like, I can't. 
I can't keep doing this. Like, this is just too many things. Joel. You got to like pick a couple. And so I consolidated a bunch of them. And then I keep consolidating. I'm continuing to consolidate. And uh, basically right now, the split is going to be basically between Impossible and uh, the Paleo Nutrition Company. And the nutrition company is pretty much self-sustainable at this point. So I'm moving from an operator standpoint to an owner standpoint, which is its own discussion. But I feel like I'm finally getting to the point where I like slim down my actual focuses to the point where it's like, okay, I have my businesses. I have two businesses and I'm going to be training, working out. Like my goals for the next six months are like really get after the business, really get after working out and like get back into the shape that I really want to be after. And then instead of splitting my focus in all these different ways. And it's funny because everybody always says this. Everybody always says like, oh, every time you, you know, you split your focus away, you like dilute your energy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. For you, for you, for someone else, but not for me, right? But I found it's been super helpful. But it is one of those things that's like, how do you satisfy your curiosity to try a bunch of different things and do a bunch of different things and know that you can actually do things really well in a couple of different areas. But just the fact of eventually you can't do an infinite amount of things, you know? Yeah, man. There's so much truth there. I mean, you're speaking my language, dude. The analogy I thought of when I was younger was it's like wheat. You're like taking as much wheat as you can into your arms. But then as you become stronger, you can compress it more so you can grab more. And you can keep grabbing more and more wheat. But there's limits. And there's a lot of financial limits because I don't think there'd be any limits for me if I had the finances to hire the right people. Elon Musk is superhuman, but I think I'm capable of that type of multi business owner, director level thinking. Like I think I'm, I'm that gifted of a person to be able to do that. But Elon Musk couldn't do it if he didn't have the money to hire people, right? So there's those elements involved. So that's where you reach your limitations because there are so only so many hours in a day. And I agree with you about the dilution. I don't see a dilution of it. I kind of do though. Like I said, if I was focused on one thing in life, if I ever get to be an actor the way I want to be an actor, then I will drop everything. And you're going to see something you've never seen before in Adam because being able to put all my creative energy into one thing is going to be, I know, so powerful, it'll be insane. But so there's some dilution, but at the same time, like you're engaging different parts of your brain at different times and you're learning and you're growing. And the idea is also like, ideas don't come from nowhere. Ideas come from other ideas. And so you're like cross-pollinating your brain. I was about to use those words. So yeah, that's... Yeah, different strokes, but everyone's different. So for some people, they can't focus on multiple things. You know, I started a parkour gym and I started it alone. Then I started a clothing company that became a shoe company and I started it alone. In the parkour world today, usually about five people will start a gym together. You get like five tracers and an investor. I have a friend. He has four friends and an investor that started a parkour gym. And that's all they do. And I go, okay, I started a parkour gym alone before anyone knew what it was. And I started a shoe company and I moved to France. It's like, you just realize that there's people that have different intellectual potentials and different creative potentials. So you're one of those people that can do more than most people. I think part of the, the dilution is not necessarily from like doing a job worse, but it's more like um, I always find the switching costs. It's just like going from one mode of thinking to another mode of thinking. And so if I'm operating as an owner in multiple situations, the cross-pollination of ideas is actually really useful because you're like, oh, I'm doing something in this. I'm engaging my brain in this way and this type of business. And I'm kind of doing the same role in this business, but I'm it's on a different topic. And so that's been really useful. What I found is really tasking is switching between different roles within the companies. So like going from operating, managing in a company to owning something in another one. And then you're like, you're doing different types of work that require different types of energy versus like Elon Musk. He's operating as the director of all these businesses. So he's he's the visionary there. And then he does some engineering work. He, he does some like talking about rockets or talking about like how design specifications do it but then he hands it all off to his design engine he's not welding stuff you know like he's he's not having to switch between five different types of roles he's just switching between different topics that he's looking at and i found because i'm the same way where i almost thrive on having different topics or different things to think about because you get the cross-pollination of ideas you get multiple things to work on and almost comes helps you come up with better ideas down the road than if you're just in the hole with one idea all the time but what I found is the role switching is sometimes the more tasking thing that dilutes more of my energy than if I, than just having a different business completely. It's the task switching. It's like as an actor, the way I see it is you're changing like your brain wave patterns when you become a different character. 
And when you're changing between tasks, you have to change that wave pattern. You have to change how you're thinking, what you're thinking about. And so I find that as well to be very difficult. And it's something you can get better at for sure. But it's incredibly taxing to spend two hours doing social media stuff. And then you switch to like financial analysis. Then you switch to, for me, character analysis and emotional availability. And then you switch to training at the gym and then you come back to the office and now you're doing customer service emails maybe or something pedantic that's that you hate. You know, I mean, it's like things like that are kind of, it's draining at a level that I don't think, maybe moms understand it. Maybe moms understand it, but I guarantee being a mom's a lot harder than what I do. <laughs> and Elon Musk, by the way, in his defense, I think for a while he was like, he said like 80% of his time at Tesla was, engineering or something like that yeah, he was like sleeping there for a long time yeah, I, don't, so. I don't know what he does but I, I get the feeling that he does do that switching as well from directorial stuff to actual engineering to overseeing the production lines and whatever so yeah he's a special human for sure that we all aspire he, to be he, like he might not be human we're not sure no one's sure that's pretty cool yeah it's pretty cool i like elon a lot Big so uh, what's next up for you then? Are you, uh, where, where's the focus going to be shifting and uh, what are you really excited about coming up? I've always followed opportunity and I've tried to sort through that, especially recently is, am I more interested in opportunity or am I more interested in specific things? And I think I realized that at the core, I'm an artist. I'm an artist that just so happens to be really good with numbers and has really good vision. Well, most people can't do both. Like my dad, when I was growing up, he was a carpenter. He made wooden boats. They're really cool. And he would go to all these trade shows and he would say, Adam, there's two things you'd find. You'd find really great artisans who made amazing products that were poor, but like the most amazing things you've ever seen. And then you'd have people that kind of made okay stuff, but they were good businessmen and they had a lot of money. You just, for some reason, I don't know if it's how the brain separates, how it works, but you don't see many people that have creativity and have like a strong intellectual or mathematical potential in their brain. It's like, even as you look at it psychologically, if you listen to some people like Jordan Peterson talks about how personalities manifest in different tasks and different abilities, then you see that there's like a more openness personality is more creative, right? I think there's some deep reasons that maybe some psychoanalysts would understand, but for some reason, there doesn't seem to me to be a lot of people that can do both. But I can't. I know I'm one of them that I can't. So that's been one of the challenges is, should I just go get a job at Nike and you know I have all this amazing experience like managing professional athletes and building sports teams and making shoes? Can I just go become a senior brand manager there and make 100000 a year, who knows however much they pay, like have a nice family, like live a normal life? Or do I want to pursue like my art, if you will? And what speaks to me the most at the core of everything is art. So my favorite thing that I do every day, not every day, but one of the highlights of my day is posting on Instagram. Nobody follows me on Instagram. And I'm okay with that. In fact, I think I would probably like it maybe marginally better if nobody followed me because then it would be the proof that what I'm doing is for myself, but I've reached that. I know it's just for myself, but you know, I post something and it takes me an hour and I get 13 likes, but like I like post ideas on Instagram, not photos. So I think what I've really delved down is that the art is what interests me. And so the artistic side of me wants to do acting. And so I recently signed with an agent in LA and I recently joined SAG after union. And so the question is, will doors open for me there? And if they do, then I'll run headlong into it. The same way I ran to France, I'll run to LA or run to New York or do whatever I got to do to be a part of movies, which is what kind of in some ways got me on my parkour journey in the first place was I saw this opportunity to leverage parkour abilities to get into movies. And now I'm just pursuing movies as an actor instead of through parkour, right? It's kind of like, oh, I didn't need a David Bell, Luke Besson in. I didn't need this stunt work in to be good in movies. I could just use myself and be an actor. So my, you know, my dream is for that to develop and for Adam to become world famous and be an amazing actor. But I also realized that you can't always make things happen in life. And that's what I've learned is I was able to make things happen for a while, but maybe I was just in the right place at the right time. Right. So I'm more about letting things happen now while staying diligent. And so I know I can't make acting happen. I use this analogy. I say, look, I think I benched like 190 the other day, 185 or something like that. I figured that if I want to bench 250, I could do it. Like not today, obviously, but I could train for it and set goals and eat right. And like my goal, I got to bench 250 in my life. I'm going to get there. I'm going to freaking get there. It's no problem. But 
the levels I want to achieve as an actor, you can't will that upon the world. Like it has to be the right timing and the right parts and the right people. You know, there's amazing world-class actors out there that never get to the level I want to be at, that want it, that do everything right. You know, we're talking at like the top, in the top 100 celebrities in the world. Like how do you get there? It's like, it has to be some magic formula that includes timing. So I know I can't will, and maybe this is the wrong mindset. Correct me, Joel, if you think it's the wrong mindset, but I don't see myself for some reason as being able to will myself into an actor that's the leading role in $150 million films. I don't see, I think I can will myself into that, but I'm willing to follow as much as the doors open that allow my artistic ability to flourish. I think you, there's a piece that's like the work, you got to put in the work, you got to be in the right place and you can control that to some extent and then there's like the magic, right? So there's a certain level you can get to with the first couple and then, you know, with that last piece, it's, you know, they always say, certain people are more lucky than others. And, you know, like maybe a lot of people are lucky, but they are just never in a place where they can actually take advantage of the opportunity. So you never want to do like survivor's bias where, you know, like, oh, this is how I became successful. So this is exactly how you should do it. But there's specific things in each person's journey that's like, if you weren't putting the work every day, if you weren't training, if you weren't doing the stuff and showing up in the right spots, you could have had that same thing happen and you wouldn't have been ready for it. So it's like to take a word from Jordan Peterson. It's like the meta stories, right? And so my biggest pet peeve or one of like the top three probably is business people that are like, it worked for me, it'll work for you. And I'm like, no, because it worked for you because you were the only one doing it, you know, or you saw an opportunity or the timing's different. Or like I said, could I build Take Flight from scratch today? I don't know if I could. I mean, I, I know I could actually, but it would be a different journey. Timing is different, different so environment. The timing is different, different and all place. that stuff. But what's the through line? I mean, the through line seemed to be you got to put in the work. You got to be good at your craft. And then that opens all other ideas. Like I know Prince talked about having longevity in the music industry. I take a lot of wisdom from this. Before he passed away, I saw an interview from him and he said, the key to having longevity in the music industry, he said something like, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like be good at everything. Like understand every element of your craft. So if all you are is a good musician, you're limited. But if you're a good musician and you can write songs, now you have ability. If you're a good musician and you can write songs and you can produce, well, now you're somebody. What if you can, and you can perform? What if you, it's like the more skills you fill out. So like these are some of like the meta stories of like the through lines of hard work. And then sometimes those just get kind of pinched and twisted to be like, follow me and do what I did. Yeah. Have you listened to Scott Adams? on uh, talent stacking. No. He's like, I'm not a great cartoonist. I'm not that funny, but I'm like a decent cartoonist and I'm kind of funny. That's what he, he attributes his ability for Dilbert to be. He's like, yeah, I'm, I know it makes people tick. I'm kind of funny and I'm like a mediocre drawer and like that makes like a good comic artist. Fantastic. And so like, I love that. You know, yeah, you, for you sure. Said, you said with the parkour thing, like you're like, I don't have to do parkour, but like having that parkour ability stacked on top of like an acting stack stacked on top of, you know, whatever other things that you have. Right, you talent stack it. For me as an actor, yeah, you have like a physical ability, right? And a, you're in shape. And then you understand the business aspects. Like you understand what makes movies tick and why they work. So then you can approach the industry from a business standpoint. Plus you have the work ethic. Plus it's like, yeah, you stack them up and then hopefully that gets you over the top. But maybe it doesn't. Who knows? Let's wrap this up. But before we do that, uh, where should people be uh, checking you out if they want to find out more about you or uh, your businesses? Parker.com is a growing site, but probably the best thing for Parker.com is the Instagram. It's dynamic. It's cool. It's entertaining. It'll inspire you. It'll make your day better. So that's Parkour, D-O-T-C-O-M, Parker.com on Instagram. If you're looking for some cool clothing, some cool shoes, man, we have some amazing pants. Our new Stealth Ultras are some of the most comfortable shoes you will ever wear. You can buy those at TKFLT.com. That's our kind of urban abbreviation of Take Flight, TKFLT.com. And then if you're looking for Adam's artistic, deep, intense, emotional posts <laughs> about life, then follow me on Instagram, which is adam.dunlap. I don't recommend it, but you're welcome to. <laughs> I will put links to all those in the show notes, and uh, we'll make sure people can check them out. So, dude, man, this is good. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. This was fun. I'm, I wish we had been able to speak more theory than story. We can always do uh, a round two. Well, I'll tell you, I know we're closing it out, but the last thing would be that the disappointment I had in this was that I was hoping that we could talk more about your life. I brought a story, a sparse story, and you brought wisdom. So I hope next time we could 
maybe focus on you and hear about the wisdom you've gleaned and then maybe we can cross-reference that and that'll be a dynamic conversation well we can get a drink and uh hash it all out so it'll be good we'll solve all the world's problems done awesome man well thank you for doing this i appreciate it it was great and uh i'll do it again sometime soon thank you pleasure to be here Hey, everybody. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you guys enjoyed the show, please go ahead on over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts, and leave us a five-star review. Uh, It's the number one way we can reach more people and have more people find out about Impossible. And if it's not five stars, uh, just send me an email. Let me know what I can do better. I'm always working on making the podcast as good as possible for you guys. Also, real quick reminders, check out MoveWellApp.com, MoveWellApp.com, 10-minute mobility routines designed to help you get stronger, be injured less, and start moving well. MoveWellApp.com, check it out. Also, ImpossibleGear.com, get your Impossible shirt, wear it while doing your next Impossible Challenge. Take a photo, send it in, and I'll feature you on the site, on Instagram, all over the place. We love seeing people challenge what they thought was impossible, going out and doing it anyways, and then realizing there's way more on their limit. Impossiblegear.com. Also, startablog.com, helping 10,000 people start a blog and get your blog set up for you for free, plus $300 worth of bonuses. There's no catches here. We're just trying to help people get started blogging. And like I said, blogging was one of the most impactful things I've ever done. So if you want to start thinking clearer, formulating your thoughts better in writing, and actually starting to think about your life like a story, check out startablog.com. We'll help you get set up with a blog. And who knows what you'll do from there. I didn't no idea when I was at UPS and messing around with WordPress that a blog would let me do the things that I've done. So check it out, startablog.com, helping 10,000 people get a free blog set up and get started telling a better story with their life. All right, guys, that is it. If you guys want to stay up to date with everything that's happening, you can follow me at Joel Runyon on Twitter and Instagram or at ImpossibleHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So that's it for today. But as always, I'll see you here same time, same place. And until then, keep pushing your limits and do something impossible. (laughs) 